Welcome to the Bethesda Christian Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit yourbcc.org or download our mobile app from the App Store. Pray with me as we've been praying since the start of the year. Lord, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. God is answering that prayer. We say amen to it because he is. And those testimonies continue to come in, and I encourage you to send them. We need them. Today, though, I want to just briefly share with you the uh, encouraging boldness of one who's known as St. Patrick. Today's his day. Bigosh and Bigora. You know, to me, it was always a great day being a Patrick. And, you know, being in the, in the Catholic school for uh, my early years, it was a grand day. You know, all the saints got a day in the Catholic church, but none like St. Patrick. I mean, they actually, they celebrated his day with great fanfare. I had a little nun who taught us a bunch of Irish songs that would warm your heart. And she had us sing them all year long. It didn't matter if it was March 17th or if it was uh, June 17th. She would be telling us to sing these songs. You know, we learned McNamara's band and the same old she laylee me father brought from Ireland and divil a man was prouder than he as he walked with it in his hand. He, she taught us, you know, oh, you know, Mrs. Murphy's chowder. I mean, that's when I learned it was an Irish prank to stick your pants in someone's pot. What's up with that? I mean, we're singing, who threw the overalls in Mrs. Murphy's chowder? Nobody spoke, so he shouted all the louder. The one that I love the best, though, she taught us, it was called In the Shade of the Old Apple Tree. Now get this, I'm like a second grader, and this sweet little Catholic nun teaching us In the Shade of the Old Apple Tree, In the Shade of the Old Apple Tree. Two Irishmen sat drinking tea, said Pat to his friend, there's a fly on the end of my nose, won't you swat it for me? (laughs) Now Pat's friend was a jolly old guy, with an axe he went after that fly. (laughs) He knocked the fly flat, and they buried poor Pat (laughs) in the shade of the old apple tree. No. See, I remember that. I remember that all about, you know, St. Patrick's Day. And uh, imagine being eight years old and going home and singing that to your mother. What are they teaching you there? Times have changed, let me tell you. And, you know, we learned about St. Patrick. There's a lot of myths about St. Patrick. But the real Patrick is a story of boldness. Now, this was a, a, a man from Britain in the 5th century. At 16 years of age, he was captured by Irish uh, marauders, pirates who took him prisoner and made him a slave. For six years, he was held. And during that time, he drew closer to the Lord. As we've just sung, he had nothing but some of the teachings that he heard as he was a kid and He sought God in prayer, and God began to speak to him in dreams. 
And one day, Patrick had a dream that told him, just escape, you need to leave. And he went 200 miles by foot, found himself a boat, and he made his way eventually back home. But through all uh, that experience, he decided to devote his life to God. And he studied, he became a priest, and then a bishop. And then one day, God speaks to him again and says, you need to go back. Go back to the land of your bondage. Well, that's kind of a tough call, isn't it? But he went. He went boldly. He went to, to the land where he had been held captive, and he converted many. He baptized thousands. He established hundreds of churches. And this was the boldness of St. Patrick. Did he drive the snakes out of Ireland? That's just one of the myths. It's one of the myths. But this morning, it ties in to the message. We'll be talking a little bit about snakes this morning, but not the snakes of Ireland, but snakes that have something to do with the cross of Jesus Christ. Patrick was bold for Jesus because he knew the way of the cross. This morning, we keep on what we started last week about the way of the cross. Traditionally, the way of the cross at least my background, being raised in uh, Roman Catholicism, at least till I was 10, 12 years old, the way of the cross was a description for the passion of Jesus Christ from the time he was arrested till the time he was crucified. But the cross began much earlier. Where did it begin? Well, it began before we began. Romans 13 I'm sorry, Revelation 13 tells us that it was Jesus, the Lamb, slain from the creation of the world. The way of the cross began before we began. The cross is from the beginning. Now, do you see that? Do you see that? We spoke last week about the way of the cross beginning in the earliest pages of Scripture there was a tree in the Garden of Eden. It was called the Tree of Life, and it pictures the cross. The Tree of Life was there to bring life. Man was blocked from it because man sinned, and because of sin, every person is destined to die. And the only way to eternal life is receiving the cross of Christ. It was on the cross that Jesus gave his life for our sin. We've been singing about it this morning, that despised symbol of pain, death, and suffering. It became a symbol of life. That cursed cross became a symbol of life because of Jesus Christ. And now crosses are openly displayed. People wear them as jewelry. We put them on buildings. We etch them onto gravestones. They're a symbol of peace and life. And that image of salvation and life, it's weaved like a tapestry throughout God's word. The tree of life, yes, that is a picture of the cross. But there's so many more, so many more we could preach every week for probably years, seeing the cross of Christ throughout the pages of Scripture. The Ark of Noah, yes, it's a picture of the cross. The wooden ark, it had one door, one way in, one way for salvation. Jesus on that wooden cross 
is the only way for salvation. One way that we enter by faith. The near sacrifice of Abraham's son, Isaac. When Abraham was tested by God, there is a great picture of the cross. In his great act of faith, Abraham obeyed God and he agreed to give up his son as an offering. Abraham, the father, put the wood of the offering on the back of his son. Can you see that that prefigures the cross of Christ on the back of Jesus? When he came to that place, where he was going to offer his son. Abraham spread out the wood and he laid his son on top of that wood. Again, another image of the son of God being laid on the cross. And yet because of Abraham's faith, God stopped that process. The book of Romans reminds us that if God is for us, like God was for Abraham because of his faith. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. God gave his own son on the cross for us all. And that, that reference in the book of Romans that says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's a parallel to one of the most oft-quoted scriptures in the entire Bible. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Yes, God gave his son up for all of us. And that revelation the blessed sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. God did not hide. He didn't cover it up. Instead, God showed it to his people from the earliest days of history, very early on, and he preserved that for us in his word. One of the many times that this way of the cross was revealed and recorded in Scripture is an account in the book of Numbers. And Jesus connected that account in the book of Numbers. It's in Numbers uh, 21. He connected it right there in John chapter 3 when we read that most oft uh, verse of the Bible, John 3.16. And it, it's an interesting connection. And I want to consider that this morning. And we'll start there in the third chapter of John and then tie it in with uh, Numbers 21. The third chapter of John, many of you know, is about Jesus meeting a man named Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And Nicodemus was at the pinnacle of his religion. He had a position in the council. He was there in Jerusalem, the capital city of the Jews. And he was a Pharisee, but he was not one of the hypocritical Pharisees that Jesus would often castigate and come against and speak harshly against. No, there was something different about Nicodemus. The man was a seeker. There was something in Jesus that drew Nicodemus to him. Jesus was in the 
Jerusalem for the Passover festival. We read that in John chapter 2, and he was doing great signs and miracles. And Nicodemus surely had heard of these signs and miracles because we read that in John 3, and maybe he even witnessed them. There was something about Jesus that resonated with this man, and he wanted to know more. But it seems that Nicodemus was afraid. He lacked boldness. He didn't approach Jesus in the open. Perhaps Nicodemus was worried about his colleagues on the council, these other Pharisees. Perhaps they would berate him. Why are you speaking with this troublemaker? What does he know? He's just a carpenter's son from Nazareth. So Nicodemus went to Jesus under the cover of night, and he struck up a conversation. Under the cover of darkness, Nicodemus approaches the light of the world, and he says to him, you know, Jesus, no one could be doing what you're doing unless God is with him. And Jesus seemed to sense that Nicodemus was struggling with belief. He was struggling with the truth of who Jesus was. So Jesus replied, Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now this leads into an explanation about what it means to be born again. Jesus explains it's not natural, it's spiritual. Jesus contrasted flesh and spirit, and he made the point that being born again is a spiritual matter. But Nicodemus still struggled with comprehending what Jesus was saying. And he said to Jesus, how can this be so? How can this be? Jesus said, Nicodemus, you're a teacher, and you still don't understand he offered him more of an explanation. This is what Jesus said. It's John chapter 3, verses 12 to 16. He said, I've spoken to you about earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And then that famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus here referred to himself in an unusual way. He said, Son of man. Now this phrase Jesus used often is recorded Jesus saying it about 80 times in the Gospels, referring to himself as son of man. Now we recognize this as Jesus pointing to his, his divinity, that he's God. But that's kind of confusing. How can the son of man, you know, flesh and blood like, like all of us, how can son of man be divine? Well, Jesus was very likely using a reference from the Old Testament, book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, the prophet had a dream where he saw what he described as a son of man. Daniel said in his dream 
The Son of Man is coming with the clouds of heaven, approaching God, being led into his presence. And the Son of Man is being given authority, glory, sovereignty, and power. And all the nations and all the peoples of every nation and every language worshipped him, worshipped the Son of Man. So this is the Son of Man to whom Jesus identifies himself. It was a humble way for Jesus to say, I'm a man, but I'm God. I'm human, but I'm divine. And Nicodemus was an educated Pharisee and a teacher. Perhaps he wasn't understanding what Jesus was saying about being born again, but he knew the scriptures. The Pharisees, if they knew anything, they knew the scriptures. They were well acquainted with the Hebrew scriptures. Scriptures, And I believe Nicodemus was well acquainted enough to make the connection that when Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. I believe Nicodemus would have recognized this as, as an incident where God brought salvation through Moses because he knew the Old Testament and he knew the incident that Jesus was referring to when he said, as Moses lifted up the snake, and he also understood the image of the Son of Man. And now Jesus was using these Old Testament scriptures to point to the cross. Jesus made this connection, and he made this connection back to when Moses lifted up the snake. And that is a, it's a strange connection, isn't it? I mean, that's just a curious connection. Right there at the, one of the most often quoted places in the entire Bible, just a couple lines before, Jesus is talking about lifting up a snake. A snake. What does a snake have to do with salvation? What does a snake have to do with the cross of Christ? Well, let's try to understand that. And let's look at this area of scripture that Jesus was alluding to. The son of man, the son of God, what was he talking about when he pointed to this time when Moses and the Israelites had to have this snake lifted up? Well, it was a time when Moses and the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness because so many of them did not believe that God could have taken them right to the promised land. So they had to wander for 40 years. And we read this account, a time of their wandering in Numbers 21. It's a very brief account, and I'll read to you the whole thing. It's verses 4 to 9. It says, They traveled from Mount Hor along the route of the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt? to die in the wilderness. There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. 
So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. That's the entire narrative. The one time it's in the Old Testament and Jesus connected to it. Jesus pointed to it. It's a peculiar incident. And it's all the more so intriguing that Jesus specifically connected it to the cross. How is a snake on a pole an image of the cross? What, what even made the snake on, on a pole necessary? Well, what made it necessary was the people sinned. The cause was sin. The people spoke against God and against Moses. They were rebellious. They were self-serving. They were self-seeking. They were desiring the, uh, the things that they had back in Egypt. They detested the food. They murmured and they complained. And what happened? What was the effect of their sin? The same effect that occurred in the Garden of Eden that we talked about last week. There was judgment. And the effect was death. This is a sober reminder about how terrible sin is. The judgment of God fell on the people. And they, they experienced a plague of snakes, venomous snakes. They were in mortal danger. They had a fatal problem. Those who were bitten had been injected with the venom of a deadly reptile. They were destined to die. Can you, can, can you see the parallel? Can you see the parallel to mankind and to Jesus and what he does on the cross? All mortals have been infected with a deadly venom called sin. And after the, the serpent in the garden lured the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, to rebel against God, they sinned. And what was the result? The result was death. But God promised a remedy, the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And the remedy then is Jesus. It's Jesus. The remedy is Jesus in the cross. That was prefigured in the Old Testament, prefigured by this snake on a pole. And let's see how this remedy of the snake on the pole prefigured the cross. How did it, how did it bring an image of the cross? First, its remedy was singular. That is, there was only one. There was only one. One fix, one cure. Moses didn't put up several poles. He didn't say, hey, Aaron, let's make a dozen poles with snakes and put them all around the camp or, or one for each tribe. No, Moses made one, just one, singular, one, one and only. A simple look to the one and only pole that had this serpent on it. It brought about something. It brought about something miraculous, a healing. And how unlikely would someone think that that would be the effect? How could a cure come by merely looking to this thing, some twisted image of bronze. I can imagine some would think, Moses is mocking us. This thing is a joke. Seriously, look at a snake on a pole? I don't think so. That's crazy talk. I'll go to the doctor. I can sleep this off. I've been bitten by snakes before. I'll tie off my wound. 
There are countless rational ways to deal with this thing other than this, this bizarre request to look at a snake on a pole. And isn't that true of the cross? It's singular. It's the one and only way. There is only one Savior from whom all grace emanates and of whom we read it pleased the Father to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus Christ. Christ and his cross is the one and only way for salvation. There are no other remedies for eternal death but the cross. As unlikely as it seems, as bizarre as it seems, as implausible as it appears, the cross of Christ, this emblem of suffering and shame and death, it stands as the one and only way to eternal life. Oh, you know, but Confucius tells me it makes more sense in his words, so I'll follow him. Or, or Buddha, he's so wise, he can lead me to enlightenment. Well, I'll, I'll follow him. Nature speaks to me. I can be at peace and at one with nature. And I'll find nirvana. See, mankind has imagined countless, fantastic, but fictional ways to achieve life beyond death. But the only way is the cross. The one and only way. Even though the way of the cross makes no sense. It requires humility. And it requires denying self. And admitting that Jesus took our penalty. Jesus took my penalty on the cross. It's the one way. It's the only way. It's the singular remedy. And it's a remedy that is effective. Like the bronze snake that Moses used was effective. Can the lethal bite of a serpent be cured by looking at another serpent? Can the thing that brings death brings life? Our mind says, no, it can't be. Yet that was the cure. It was divine. It was miraculous. And Moses documented it as effective. For those who looked up at the bronze snake... They lived. There is no mention of an in-between. Moses doesn't tell us that there's some that were almost cured, that they made it halfway and limped for, for the rest of their life. No. They died or they lived. And if they did not look, they died. If they looked, they lived. If they turned their eyes to this pole, they lived. It didn't matter how far away they were. There, isn't some, there, was, there, there wasn't some rule that you had to be within 100 yards. They didn't have to see it clearly. Moses didn't say, well, you should see the, the scales on the, on the bronze. They didn't have to understand how it worked. It didn't matter if they looked at it immediately after they were bitten or if they waited some time even if they were right on the verge of death. If they looked, they lived. The promise had no qualifying statement attached to it. Look and live. That's what Moses said. And it is that way with the cross. The cross, a symbol of death, brings life. 
It is divine. It is miraculous. And it is effective. Consider that the serpent on the pole represents sin and death. How does that relate to Jesus as a cure for sin and a cure for death? How can Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, the perfect, sinless one, equate to sin? Because on the cross, Jesus was made to be sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He carried the cross, the penalty that we deserved for rebelling against God so that in him we might become the righteousness of God and gain eternal life for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes on him will have eternal life. Plainly said, Jesus Christ up, up on the cross, he was an exhibition of God's unbounded love to us. God's unbounded love to mankind. Whoever looks to the cross of Christ and believes that this, the grandest display of God's love, the giving of his one and only son to become a curse for us, to become sin for us. If you believe that, then you live. The person who believes that shall surely live. The way of the cross was exemplified in the wilderness with Moses, with this image of the serpent. The serpent on the pole is an image of Christ carrying our curse on the cross. It's a singular and it's an effective remedy for that fatal infection called sin. We must look and live. Look to the cross and live. Now, I know many of you in this room, you've done just that. You know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You belong to him. You can say that this morning. I belong to him. I've looked to the cross. I believe in the sacrifice, what Jesus has done for us. So for those of us who believe, what is this, what is this narrative in the book of Numbers bring to us? What lesson can we take from this, the snake on the pole? And I give you this. Imitate Moses. Imitate Moses who lifted the snake up and lift up the gospel and lift up the cross. Be bold about it. Be bold to carry the cross of Christ. Be bold to show others the cross of Christ. Moses didn't call out for Aaron and say, oh, Aaron, my brother, I'll bring some of your priestly garments and dress up this snake so nobody sees it. He didn't try to cover up what the snake looked like. He didn't say, oh, let's try to make this snake look like a dove. Moses presented this exactly as God had directed him. And God has given us Jesus Christ in the cross. And we don't have to try to change the cross. You know, we might worry that the cross is too violent, it's too bloody. Why do we have to talk about that? Why do we have to talk about a crucifixion? Can't we change that? Can't we water it down? Can't we make it a little more appealable? Can we hide the violence of the cross? It might not be easy to talk about, but we don't have to water down the violence of the cross or the crucifixion or dress it up to somehow make it appeal to the world or those who need it. 
Because this is what Jesus did willingly for every single one of us. He gave his life on that cross. Let's imitate what Moses did and lift him up. This is what we have to do for our Lord. Preach him as he is. Tell of who he is. Speak boldly of the cross and what it has accomplished for each of us. Make it visible to all. Don't hide it away. In everything that we do, let it be for Christ to be seen. Remember Nicodemus who I started out talking about. Remember Nicodemus, when he first saw Jesus, it was under the cover of darkness, and it seemed he had some fear. He might have only seen dimly this, this Jesus, and he might have only seen dimly and understood with just a little bit of comprehension the idea of being born again, and his, his understanding might have been clouded, but he didn't, he didn't even see the, the actual cross. He only heard the example of this snake in the wilderness. And yet he believed. Yet he believed. The next time we meet Nicodemus is in John chapter 7. And Nicodemus is no longer under the cover of darkness. He's out in the light of day and he's defending Jesus before those same people that he shared the Jewish council with. He was defending Jesus before the chief priests and the Pharisees. And then the third and the final time we read of Nicodemus, it's in John chapter 19. Nicodemus had now witnessed the crucifixion, just like Jesus said, just like being lifted up like that snake in the wilderness. Jesus was lifted on the cross, and Nicodemus with his friend Joseph took the body of Christ off of the cross. Nicodemus believed, and he did not shrink back. Well, Jesus didn't die to become a relic. He didn't die to be stored away in the darkness. He didn't die to be put into a chest or uh, to be stood up in the corner to collect dust in some museum. No, he died for us. He died for our eternal, eternal life. Let's exalt Jesus. Lift him high in the lowest valley. In the lowest valley, lift him high. You know, can you say yes? Yes, you will do that. Lift up Jesus. Bring him to light. Speak well of his name. Lift him up for the world to see. That's the example that we leave here with today from this account in the Old Testament. Let's stand to our feet and pray as we go and pray for that boldness to carry the cross of Christ and lift it high, to know the way of the cross that Jesus uh, died for us, the way that began from the very foundation of the world, the earliest pages of scripture to win for every single one of us eternal life. And if you haven't turned your life over to Jesus Christ this morning is your opportunity to go from death to life. There is no in-between. There is no walk in the fence. There is no part alive and part dead. It's either death or life. Look to the cross of Christ and live. Let's pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, 
the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the one who saved us from death, hell, and the grave by giving his life on the cross. Lord, he took sin, the cursed serpent representing sin. He took sin for us on that cross. God, we thank you for that. We love you for that. We're grateful for that. If there's any in this room who've never turned to Christ in repentance and, and asking for forgiveness for their sin and seeing Jesus as that sacrifice, Lord, if they're reaching out for you today, bless them. Meet them, Lord. Touch that heart. Lord, minister to that heart and show them the truth like you showed Nicodemus who came out of darkness and into your marvelous lights. God, I pray that for any in this room that need Jesus, Lord, that, that are asking you now that Jesus would enter their life and their heart. And Father, for all of us, who know you and trust you and love you as Lord and Savior. Give us that boldness to carry your cross, to lift it high, to not be ashamed of what Jesus did for us on the cross, to not water down his life-giving sacrifice on the cross, the fact that he shed his blood for us. Lord, we're not ashamed. We praise you for it. We love you for it. We thank you for it. You're our God and there is none other. Bless your people with that as they go, God. Bring us good and, and wonderful testimonies of the boldness of these brothers and sisters, the boldness of these, your servants, Lord, as they go out into their neighborhoods, into their workplaces, into the world. May it be they share Jesus and that they're effective for you, God, for you and you alone. Lord, I pray these things and I ask these things in a powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Amen.